family, our pastor, and uh, just so that you will be able to tell the difference, he has darker hair than I do. <laughs> so, <clears throat> just one, one distinction. If you have uh, your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to Micah, chapter 6. This is, uh, Micah was one of the prophets to Judah, the southern kingdom, during the mid-700s B.C. And here's what he says to the people. Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. And he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that this message that was delivered some 2,700 years ago would be true for us today, that by your Spirit, Lord, we would be able to live a righteous, holy just and merciful life. Father, convict our spirits this morning, change our minds, and renew our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned, uh, Micah was uh, in the 700s, mid-700s to early 700s. He was a minor prophet. It was approximately 700 years after Moses. So a while has gone by since the time of Moses. He was a prophet to both Israel and Judah, primarily Judah, the southern kingdom. And Hosea, Amos, and Isaiah were contemporaries. Isaiah more so in the northern part of the kingdom, but, or excuse me, in Jerusalem. Micah, much more a country guy. He was a farmer type of person. Uh, from a little town called Morasheth, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. They faced imminent attack. There was an imminent threat of invasion. And so Micah addresses some of the problems that were going on socially at the time. And see see if any of these sound familiar. There was unfaithfulness and idolatry, covetousness, oppression, of the poor from the rich, seizure of property, violence, 
encouraging false prophets. There was a corruption of the princes, a corruption of the prophets, a corruption of the priests. There was bribery. They were offering sacrifices without repentance. Dishonesty. These are all things that Micah mentions from chapters 1 through 7. But let me ask you, what do we see today? We see witchcraft and soothsayers and fortune tellers call this number psychedelic hotlines. We see people desiring homes and land with eminent domain for the greater good of the people. We see bullying people for their possessions. We see crime in the streets. We see violence. And by the way, that Hebrew word for violence is Hamas. Prosperity gospel is being preached. The social gospel. We have cults abounding everywhere. We have the abuse of power over people. We have false teachers and false preachers. We have the indulgences, that the idea that you can buy your way out of guilt before God. We have buying off of judges and verdicts. We see this in the news regularly, daily, with the people who are in the jury, in the courtroom daily. A works-based salvation is promoted by nearly every sect. And we have an unjust economic system with usury and inflation off the charts. We have the threat of imminent attack with our borders, with wars that we are involved with overseas. This is a case about the violation of the covenant from a covenant-keeping God by a covenant-breaking people. And God's law is at the heart of this indictment. This is a real legal indictment. That is the Hebrew word. Oreev is what it's called. And this is God truly taking his people to court. Now let me describe the courtroom for just a minute. And this is Micah's own words. Micah has been appointed the court prosecutor attorney. He is representing God. And he is bringing this case before the people of God. And what do we have in the courtroom? There are three things that we have in the courtroom. It's interesting. We have the mountains and the hills and we have the enduring foundations. And all three of these have borne testimony, borne witness to the sins of Israel. They were there when these sins were committed. As a matter of fact, Israel used the mountains and the hills to set up their high places and worship false gods. This is in the face of what mountains typically were used for. We have Mount Sinai where the giving of the Ten Commandments occurred. We have Mount Moriah where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him, but God stopped him by providing a lamb. We have Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim where the blessings and the curses were exchanged back and forth. And we have Mount Carmel where Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. The mountains have been used by God in very great ways. And the people have abused that. These enduring foundations, these hills, these mountains have witnessed the very sinful acts of God's people. And Micah calls them to bear witness against the people. Now let me ask you a question here as we apply this. We look around and we have markers in our, in our geography. You know, if you go past Old Miller's Farm and take a left, Right? What has creation born against you? 
Is there a place you can go by and say, I've been completely pure in this area? Or do you drive by and say, yeah, even, even on a road when somebody cuts you off, <laughs> that's the place where <laughs> you, know, you lost your temper. Creation bears testimony against us, not for us. So the courtroom is these mountains and these hills and these enduring foundations. But they also are the witnesses, as I just mentioned. They've witnessed against us. But they're also the jury. They're the ones who, on behalf of God, have declared we are sinful. God uses these kinds of languages in his word to convict us. So if you'll go down to verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. This is, again, part of the legal case. Micah, having brought Israel into the courtroom of creation, now opens the case with two questions before them. He gives the defendant, Israel, a chance to dismiss the case. And God poses, yeah, now's your chance. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? What does Israel respond? What's their response? Can you find it in the text? It's not there. There is no answer. Israel knows. What God has done to us is he's separated us unto himself. That's what he's done to us. What God's done to us is he's washed us. He's purified us. He's given us a system. At the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, at this time, he had given them a system whereby they could know the love of God. They could know the holiness of God with the temple and the tabernacle and all of these ways that God had instituted to them, they could know what God had done to them. He gave them his law. How has God wearied them? Well, isn't it really the case that we've wearied him? Isn't that really what is going on here? Isn't that why Israel has no response? Yet, what does Christ say? He takes our burdens. My yoke is... My burden is light, right? We are to cast all of our burdens on him. Look at verse 4 with me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Micah presents now the prosecution's case and reminds the people of the evidence of God. You can't answer the question, so the case can't be dismissed. You have no evidence against God. So now let God continue to present his evidence. And Micah says, okay, God's redeemed you from the house of of bondage. He's brought you up from the land of Egypt. And by the way, this is the event that is constantly pointed to in the Old Testament as the climactic act of God's redemption for his people. The coming out of Egypt... He rehearses the wondrous and mighty acts of God by redeeming them from the exodus. They would naturally remember the enslavement of Israel. 
that would be a natural thing. This, even though it had occurred 700 years prior, this was so ingrained in the teachings of the people of Israel that the people knew it by heart. They knew these stories. Micah is bringing to them not some recollection of a new parable or a new story. This is something that Israel had with them the whole time. They would think of Moses. And they would think of Aaron and Miriam as leaders God had provided. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? I've given you leaders. I've brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage to slavery. They would be reminded of the ten plagues. These plagues that had, God had sent upon Egypt to judge the false gods. If we think about it, if you go back, that's a wonderful study. How God has destroyed all of the false gods. And we see that very emphatically in the ten plagues on Egypt. Which, by the way, Israel suffered the first three as well. And was under threat of the last one. They would remember the 40 years of the wandering in the wilderness. How the unbelieving generation died off because Israel's people were not allowed to go into the promised land until unbelief had dissipated. The unbelief was taken care of. They would think of their ancestors being brought into a land flowing with milk and honey. As God went before them and defeated enemy after enemy. Now here they are in bondage, near bondage. All of these social things are going on. These, these problems are happening. Injustice everywhere. No one is walking humbly with anybody. There is no mercy. We can say very much the same thing today. Look at verse 5, please. Oh, my people. God had said this in verse 3, Oh, my people. This is not a court case that God wanted to happen. Wanted in the sense of, is he pleased with bringing (laughs) the sins of his people before judgment? No. Is he pleased sovereignly? Yes, he's decreed it. But is, is this something that on their behalf he knows that they will not like? No, they won't. Oh, my people. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. The people would be reminded of how God used Balaam, a wicked soothsayer, who ended up being killed by Israel. He was used to pronounce blessings, not curses, on God's covenant people. The evidence is mounting against Israel here. Israel and Judah, both kingdoms, northern and southern, would recall how God brought them up out of the 40 years of wandering to the Jordan River. And it was the rainy flood season that they were there. And God parts for them the waters that they may cross over on dry ground, as he had before 700 years earlier. This was the rainy season. 
This is what they would remember. This was the proof of the righteousness of the covenant-keeping God. It doesn't seem to jar them at all. There doesn't seem to be any movement on the part of Israel. There doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement by Israel that these things are, yes, we are, we are guilty, God, you are good. There doesn't seem to be any indication of that. They, like us, were downplaying their depravity. Their seriousness of sin. We compare ours, don't we? Our sins to other people. We're, we're sinful, we'll acknowledge that much, but we're not as bad as. We're not as, not as bad as Hitler. I mean, I've never killed anybody. I'm a good guy. That makes me good. Hitler's standard makes me good. The people came up with options. You know, if we really are convicted by what God is telling us, but what Micah is telling us, that's going to mean a change in everything that we do. That's going to mean an upending of all of our lifestyle. That's going to mean we're going to have to stop taking money from people that we're abusing. We're going to have to probably do something about, uh, you know, uh, all of these people who are suffering. No more violence? It's kind of fun. We have to end all this? So what do the people do? They attempt to settle out of court. Their behavior hasn't changed. And get this, how they have been treating their fellow man is how they treat God. And how they treat God will be how you treat your fellow man. It's one of those axioms. They attempt to bribe God. Verse 6, what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt uh, burnt offerings with calves a year old. Wow, okay, well, burnt offerings. Let's talk about that for a second. I was, uh, Anna and I were actually talking about this. Like, I wonder how the people said this. I wonder how, what, what you know, are they actually kind of trying to devise a way and really be sincere about, well, what if we gave God this? Would he be okay with that? And it was Anna's idea. It was kind of comical. She said, well, maybe they were responding in a typically Jewish way. What shall I come before the Lord with? Right? And bow myself down before the God of the Most High. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? <laughs> Maybe it was that way. We don't have the inflections of what was said. But we know that it was a thought that they had. And that's really all that matters. right? Our thoughts and words and even our thoughts are judged. They still attempted to bring this before God. So if we look at burnt offerings as something God would have accepted, and he did in Leviticus, he institutes the burnt offerings. He tells us this is what the burnt offerings are. 
for everyone, it was for everyone, every economic class. So that would have covered everybody. The whole animal was to be burned, so you don't have any trash to take out. That's nice. It was meant to be a pleasing aroma to God. So our stench disappears. It allowed a person to approach God. But there were five offerings in the Old Testament. The grain offerings and the others. But one was the burnt offering that allowed you to basically enjoy the presence of God. But there was another one called the sin or the guilt offering that actually restored your relationship to God. They didn't offer that one. They only wanted the surface. We just want to be able to come before God so that we can be buddies. I don't really want to repair the relationship of my offenses against God. I only want to assuage my guilt. I just want to get rid of my guilt. It's been posed before. If you could choose to have anything you wanted in the world without consequence of any legal consequence, you know, you've heard these things before. Right? What would, would, you, would you, if you could you know, have any car you wanted without consequence of money? Or, people do this all the time. They ask these questions all the time. And we are quick to answer, aren't we? Oh, well, I would like the... The Hellcat, uh, that's all I know, right? Uh, I, I would like a Lamborghini with a, what a, a pink Lamborghini with whatever. People answer these things. Our hearts are in the same place as these people. A year old calf. Leviticus 9.3 is where that's instituted or it's described. It was more valuable than the younger calves. And so again, they're thinking about what can I give God that is of most value to me? But it's not what we bring to God that appeases God. It's not the quality of our worship. But verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give the firstborn of my transgression, uh, the, my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It's not the quality, but it's also, if you read this, it's not the quantity of our worship. It's not how much we can give God. It's not how much tithes you bring to God. It's not how much time you invest. It's not how many people you've talked with and shared the gospel with. It, it's, quantity's not the issue. But look at this. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? At the dedication of the temple, over 100,000 rams were, dead, were, were killed. And God was pleased with that. I think it was like 140,000. God was pleased. He accepted that at the dedication of the temple. So, maybe that's what they're thinking. Tens of thousands of rivers of oil, and the oil was often used as an accent to the sacrifices, the offerings, in part to help cover up the smell. And then it gets serious, really serious. 
shall I offer or give my firstborn for my transgression? Now they're actually willing to institute child sacrifice. They're willing to kill off their offspring and hope that God takes it. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Fair exchange. God moves to dismiss this and he says in verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. This goes right over their heads. Now, we're going to go back to verse 4. Because all of this changes. This whole message changes. We, we clearly see God has a case. We clearly see that we're guilty. We clearly see that he's given us the way out. To love mercy and to do justice and to walk humbly with God. We, that's, that's how this is fixed. But where's Jesus? Because none of this works without Jesus. So let's go back to verse 4. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Moses represented the law. Aaron represented the priesthood. Miriam, when they had safely made it to the other side of the Red Sea, celebrated the song with with song so we have the law and we have worship and we have celebration and what is the song that Miriam sang Exodus 15 2 turn there with me if you will real quick it's just a quick verse Exodus 15 2 I'm going to read verse 1 Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This is one of the things that points to Christ. He is our strength. He is our song. Moses pointed to Christ. The law, obviously. Christ came not to to, uh, abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He was the embodiment of the law. He fulfilled it completely. He met all of its requirements. And Aaron, the high priest, we're told... In Hebrews 14, that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. So when these things are being mentioned to the people, though they didn't know Jesus by name, they point clearly to Jesus Christ. What about the Passover? The blood on the doorposts. Aren't we saved by the blood? Don't we escape death because... Of blood? 
blood of the lamb in our place? Look at verse 5. Oh, my people, remember what Bala, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Okay, we didn't get into that, did we? We just kind of skipped over that. I think, I think it's a very typical thing to do. We read through, but what, what, what did Balaam say? What did happen with Balak and Balaam? What's going on here? Balak was a Moabite king. And he had hired, he had heard that Israel was coming through and he wanted to pronounce curses upon Israel. And so he hired a professional soothsayer, a witch doctor, someone who could go out, look at Israel, and pronounce curses upon Israel. So he brings, he sends out men to, to summon Balaam, and they work out a deal, and so Balaam goes out to pronounce curses upon Israel, and he can't. He can't. And this happens four times. And each time he comes back and he tells Balak, I can't speak other than what God has commanded me to speak. I've tried it. I can't do it. I didn't take your money, is kind of the intention. I didn't take your money under false pretenses. I didn't just take your money and am intending to do the opposite. I actually took the money, thank you, I'll go curse them, went out and tried, and I can't. But here are a summary of the four curses that really were blessings, the four blessings that Balaam pronounced on the people of Israel. Remember, Micah is saying, he's calling them, he says, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. What was that? One, Israel will be a countless multitude he blesses Israel. Two, Israel's strength and vict- in, uh, they will have much strength and they will have victory. They will rule over nations. Three, that those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. And then four, there shall come a star out of Jacob. And a scepter will arise from Israel. Do you know who that is? That's Jesus. He just prophesied Jesus is coming. And all of the other elements of the four blessings that he gave are basically a summation of the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise never to leave his people. From Shittim to Gilgal is the next part of this verse. Shittim was the last encampment where Israel was before crossing the Jordan into the promised land. The first encampment that they set up was called Gilgal. Now, we talked about Moses. Remember this, very important. Moses represented the law. He died on the top of Mount Nebo and was not permitted to go into the promised land. He could only look at it. Moses represented the law. Clearly, anybody who thinks of Moses thinks of the law. 
and Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. What does that tell you? The law cannot save you. Who takes them into the promised land? Joshua. Yeshua. Jesus takes us into the promised land. That's who saves us. And the irony is he saves us by keeping the law. He transfers the law. The law doesn't disappear in the promised land. It becomes something they are to follow. And God has two kinds of covenants. He has unconditional covenants. That's the Abrahamic covenant. I will not leave you nor forsake you. You are my people, I am your God. Nothing can change that. And you have conditional covenants. Do this and I'll bless you, and if you don't do it, I'm going to punish you. And Micah is blending these two. He's showing you, you have an expectation to obey. You have an expectation to do these things to please God, but God, regardless of your sin, in spite of your sin, God's covenant overrides all of your sin. Verse 6, what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? We know. We know. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice. Going back to the mountains, remember Abraham with Isaac. Abraham, it says, has his hand up, ready to thrust it into his son. And if you read Genesis 22, it says, Isaac, his only son. He had two. He had Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael was older. But Scripture says Isaac was his only son because it was the only son by promise. And Abraham is ready to thrust the knife into Isaac. And an angel stops him. Christ is that ram caught in the thicket. Christ is our substitute. Verse 7. And it gets really personal here. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens, thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give the firstborn, my firstborn, for my transgressions? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? No, God will not accept it. That that offering will be just as sinful as you. He's not going to accept that. But God offers his firstborn for your transgressions. This is clearly Jesus Christ. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. We live today in really, in a lot of ways, no different times than the times of Micah. There was child sacrifice. 
there was abuse, violence. But what do we have today? We have abortion. How's that any different? How, 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 is, how is the killing of a child? And, and I really do believe that at the heart of abortion is an attempt to get rid of guilt. The, the attempt to not have to deal with a lifelong memory of a sinful act. God does this for us, his son, for our transgression. In the light of Christ, Micah 6.8 takes on a whole new meaning. In the light of Christ, apart from Christ, if you're hearing, he has shown you, oh man, what to do and what is just, but to, love just, to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Apart from Christ, how do you do that? What does that look like? It looks like morality. It looks like behavioristic morality. It looks like just good people trying to be the best they can. To do justice? I love justice. I, I'll stop and help somebody change a flat tire. That's mercy. Justice, oh, that, that guy should not have talked to his wife that way. That's wrong. Okay, you're right. That's a just thing to point out. To walk humbly with God, can they do that? Can someone apart from Christ do that? No, this verse has absolutely no meaning apart from Christ. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord seek in you? But to do justice. This is righting a wrong. All of us here know what God's word says. And by the way, the only way we're going to know how to right a, a, an injustice is to know what God points out as what is just and unjust. So again, we have to have the law. We have to know the law to be able to do this. But to do justice, James also tells us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. What does doing justice look like? Where are there wrongs in your home, in your community, at work? I'm not saying by any means be a vigilante. What I am saying is that if we don't know what is right and what is wrong, Isaiah gives the warning, right? Woe to those people who call evil good and good evil. We live in a society that doesn't know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. For a man to say he's a woman? That is not an inherently evil comment. For a man to say, I'm a woman, what makes, it in, what makes it evil is the fact that he actually is saying one thing is good and one thing is bad. That the bad thing is good and the good thing is bad. He's conflating the two. It is a sin to do that. 
And listen, I'm not saying, okay, we're, after church, meet me over in the corner, we're going to set up an organization and go out and talk to people who are transgender confused. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, all of you in your daily lives, wherever you are, these subjects come up. These topics come up. People are hurting, they're confused, they need the gospel, they need Christ. And if you don't know what is right and what is wrong, how are they ever going to hear it from you? To do justice. But then it says to love mercy. This word is chesed. If I did that correctly, I'm sorry. Kindness. It's translated maybe in your, in your Bibles as faithfulness or kindness or mercy. And it's all of those things. To love mercy, to love kindness, to love faithfulness. They're all three implied, but to love it. Now listen, here's the interesting thing about justice. Justice is going out, it's doing, it's, it's seeing a wrong and trying to address it. Mercy is when an injustice has been done to you and you forgive it. Mercy is not trying to make it right for yourself. It's taking that offense. We need to love mercy. And to walk humbly with God. And this Hebrew meaning here, to walk humbly, is really to walk cautiously. To walk carefully with God. How do we do that? How do we walk carefully with God? And again, it's like putting together that bicycle on Christmas morning. It's like following the instructions. How do we know that we're doing it right? We follow the instructions. How do you know you're walking humbly with God? You follow the word. There has to be a knowledge that comes with this. Amos was a contemporary of Micah. He was in the northern kingdom. He had a very, very similar message. I'm going to read Amos 4 to close. Listen to this. It gets scary. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. And you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I withheld rain from you when you were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you 
with the blight and mildew and many your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive oil, your olive trees to the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, as you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. What does God have to do to you to get you to turn to Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word. We thank you for Micah, your servant, uh, who faithfully proclaimed proclaimed the gospel. We ask, Lord, that you would... uh, Use this message for all of us that you would convict us in our hearts and our spirits. Lord, drive us to action. Help us to be a people who are at the forefront of our society, at the forefront of um, sharing the gospel, making a change in our world. We ask, Lord, that you would um, use your spirit to convict and convert. Lord, for those who don't know you, we ask that you would turn them uh, by your love to them, to, to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing Micah 6 8. He has shown thee. He has shown thee. Oh. 